Well, if you would open your Bibles uh, to 1 Kings. Um, We began to look at the monarchy of Israel a few weeks ago. In the uh, transition from the uh, time period of the judges to uh, the establishment of the monarchy and Israel's first king, Saul. Um, Saul's failures, um, Saul's carnality, and then, of course, God's anointed little uh, overseer of the lambs, David, Israel's greatest king. And we enter now into what is the final stages of David's life and the transfer of the mantle, if you will, to his son Solomon. And um, the focus will not so much be this morning on the uh, building of the temple um, as is I want to focus on the, the life of Solomon himself. You know, the, the rise to power and uh, a fatal flaw um, in his life for which we can learn much from. So we'll begin in 1 Kings, I'll open in prayer, and then we'll begin to read. We'll look at uh, numerous passages of scripture this morning so that, that we understand something of God's sovereignty um, over uh, this man's life. Father, we do thank you again for the blessed opportunity to gather together. We thank you that your word is living and active, and we thank you that it is your word, that we're assured of that, that we have been granted um, the spiritual eyes to see and transformed hearts to embrace and understand the glorious truth of your word. Help us to understand this morning, here in this Sunday school hour, as well as into the corporate service this morning for your glory and the blessing of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, at the end of David's life, uh, one of his sons, Adonijah, um, assumed that he would be the one to succeed his father on the throne. And he actually declared himself as king. Which really shares the the prideful similarities of his brother Absalom. Um, Earlier in David's life, Absalom uh, attempted a coup uh, against his father and uh, ended up uh, with his beautiful locks of hair entangled in a tree and a spear run through him. That was the end of his life. And the scripture says that David wept uncontrollably. compared to the child of David that was born and died as an infant. Um, He prayed, he fasted, the baby died, he rose up, he washed himself, he went and ate. People said, why why are you still not fasting? Because look, the baby is gone. The baby shall not return to me, but I shall go and be with the child one day. In in comparison with the the loss of Absalom, he wept uncontrollably. And I believe the reason he wept uncontrollably is because he knew his son was not saved. Here now, Absalom's brother, Adonijah, attempts to usurp the throne. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now King David was old and advanced in years. 
And although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore, his servant said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her life in your arms, that my lord the king may be warm. Let her lie in your arms. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all of the territory of Israel and found Abishag the the Shunammite. Mark that name, Abishag. And brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. In other words, there was nothing sexual about this relationship. Um, She was brought here to comfort David in his uh, dying last days. Now, Adonijah, verse 5, the son of Haggai exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared himself for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? That's a problem. He also was a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. So there's two um, young lads who grew up who were incredibly good looking. Absalom, the Bible says, was stunningly handsome, as was this brother. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and Abiathar, the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok, the priest, and Beniah, son of Jehoiada, and Nathan, the prophet, and Simei, and Rei, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. So here he claims the kingdom for himself. He gathers these, uh, this little group of people as his allies, um, even Joab, David's uh, most trusted um, commander and general, he also joined this, uh, this little coup. Others that were gathered were later omitted, um, who had shown themselves faithful to David throughout his life. Um, a rare thing to find is faithfulness throughout life. All we have to do is read the pages of Scripture and see time after time the faithlessness of those who follow leaders such as this. But you had Nathan the prophet, you had uh, Abiathar the priest, as well as many others who had shown themselves to be true and loyal to David who did not participate um, in this uh, little takeover. But he attempts to extort power for himself. But David, as you know, had sworn an oath to Bathsheba that it would not be um, Adonijah that would take the throne over, but it would be their son Solomon. We pick up the account, verse 28. King David said, call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity. As I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May the Lord, may my Lord King David live forever. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Beniah the son of Jehoiada, and they came before the king. And the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon 
my son, ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel, then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. So David calls Solomon as his successor, and then he calls him into his presence. Notice in chapter 2. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. That the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me, in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. He says, show yourself a man. You know, every true man's desire is is to see that his son becomes a true man. I was listening to R.C. Sproul give a lecture, and he said that he was watching at one time a uh, TV interview with a famous actor, and the interviewer asked this actor, he said, when does the transition take place between boyhood and manhood? How do you know when you have become a man? And this uh, famous actor answered, and he said, you know that you're a man when your daddy says you are a man. It's so true. And he went on to say that this reveals the unspoken assumption that is deeply rooted within manhood. You know, I remember exactly where I was, the time, the place, the date that my father said to me, today you're a man, therefore be a man. That's what, that's what David says to Solomon. Be strong and show yourself a man. And you want to really be a man? You follow the instructions of your creator, your redeemer. You follow his ways. Go on now, Solomon, be a man. So David's attention here to Solomon is the solemn responsibility that goes with his role as king. He's taken over the throne of his father. He is a representative of the nation of Israel, which is a representation of Almighty God. He says, go be a man. So this is how the kingdom changes hands between David and his son Solomon, those enemies, Adonijah, and his little attempt at a coup here, um, uh, all of this rebellion is crushed. Solomon first spared Adonijah. Okay, Solomon takes over the throne. Adonijah runs to the um, 
uh, the altar and he grabs the horns of the altar. And the horns of the altar is what would hold the sacrifice in place. He would grab the horns of the altar. And that was, is equivalent to someone finding themselves in trouble with other believers or whatnot. And where do they run? They run to the chapel or they run to the church and say, man, you, you wouldn't hurt a man. Look, here I am in the presence of God. Here I am in the church. Which is usually a picture of worldly sorrow. Rather than falling in repentance, godly sorrow before God. So Adonijah runs, he grabs the horns of the temple, Solomon spares his life. But later on, Adonijah approaches Bathsheba and he says, I have a question, please don't turn me down. Please go to the king and ask him that I might have Abishag, the Shunammite, as my wife. Remember, Abishag is the young, beautiful Shunammite woman who was, who was the, the comforter of David in his last days. Solomon says, that's it. And he had him killed. Joab, who came against his father also, Solomon had Joab killed. You know, these men have shown themselves unfaithful in my father's kingdom. We'll take care of them so that they won't show themselves unfaithful again. So all of this comes to an end. The rebellion is crushed. And Solomon now has provided a clear path for the sake of succeeding his father on the throne of Israel. Notice then in chapter 3. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh the king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Now, the introduction there provides for us a a gloomy portrayal of that which is yet to come, which we'll see unfold here this morning. Um, But nevertheless, we know that Solomon, um, throughout Scripture, is portrayed as having wisdom above and beyond all others before him or those who would come after him. He's accredited with uh, the writing of Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs, and many um, Psalms. And early on in his reign, we witness that he has a deep devotion to God along with this extraordinary level of wisdom. But nevertheless, there's a fatal flaw. And this will be the cause of his downfall. And we'll look at that as we go on. So here he rules uh, in a way that actually strengthened the kingdom that was established by his father, David. Uh, Military might increased. Building projects of all kinds increased. David wanted to build a temple unto the Lord. God said, no, you are a man of blood, of much blood, of much bloodshed. Um, That task will be granted to your son. And indeed, Solomon will go on and he will construct the temple. So all of this begins, his reign begins with humble submission to God. He sees himself low, just like we do when we come to faith, right? We understand the greatness of God. We understand 
the, this, the salvation and blessing of God in our lives and that we are unworthy of such grace and we come humbly before the Lord. Notice in verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. You have kept for him this great and steadfast love, have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in this place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or to come in. And your servant, in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for a multitude, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil for Who is able to govern this, your great people? Verse 10, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. Young men, typically, what do they want? He wasn't a child child, he was just a young man. And typically young men, young men as they grow, what do they want? They want want power. They want fame. Solomon doesn't ask for that. He asks for wisdom. And the Lord says, Oh, I'll give you wisdom. And because this is your heart, I'll also give you riches and power. So this guy has it all. He starts out, notice, in in great humility. But there was a problem. Back in chapter 3, verse 1, he marries an Egyptian king's daughter in order to secure a political relationship between Israel and the empire of Egypt. So he doesn't ask for power, doesn't ask for fame, doesn't ask for wealth, but God gives it all to him. He wants an understanding heart. He wants to be like his father. God blesses him abundantly. So Solomon will go on, he's going to build the temple, and you see the account of that in chapters 5 and 6, which we don't have time to look at, but you can see all the details of this amazing temple, which represents the presence of God, the place of worship for God's people. He'll continue for the next number of years um, where, to where building um, this great kingdom is finally finished, this great temple is finally accomplished after, what is it, seven years, I believe. And then you see this great inaugural event um, where he, he dedicates the temple. And you see that great dedication in chapters 8 and 9. And still his heart is for God. His heart is greatly devoted to Almighty God. And then in chapter 11, we see a great turn for the worse. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Get that? Along with that daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, 
and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. Now we know that before there was a central location to worship God, the people sacrificed at their own prescribed locations. And we see that in the Bible referred to as high what? High places. Sacrifice to these false gods. Now Solomon will go on and he'll build these high places for all these wives of his to worship their gods. So high places became synonymous with pagan shrines and altars. And the problem is that Solomon was involved way back in chapter 3, verse 3. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at high places places. His first mistake was marrying a pagan woman. And as is always a problem, you young folks that aren't married, this is a problem. I trust us. Never, ever marry an unbeliever. You be certain that what comes out of their mouth is coming out of their heart. Never compromise in that area. It will lead to great trouble because I'm telling you, as a true believer, as a redeemed soul, you may fall in love emotionally and you'll think in your head, oh, you know, God has my best interest in mind and in the process will change their heart or this is my evangelistic project. (laughs) Just read the Bible. Do not... Be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Pardon me? What's that? Oh, you're just praying about that. (laughs) Right, and and it's heartbreaking, right? Sandy. I know, no, no, I understand that. But Sandy, you can bear testimony and give witness, right? As someone who came to faith later. And if two people are married as unbelievers and one comes to faith, you stay married, right? But here, down that path many years, it's like having an oxen and a goat, right? Yoked together, pulling a plow, amen? Amen. And here's a woman who's faithful to her husband. Which, your life is a great testimony, by the way, sister. You love your husband. You you show faithfulness to your husband. And I trust one day, he'll be one to the Lord. But as a believer, never yoke yourself to an unbeliever. Remember David's dying words to his son? 
Back in chapter 2. Be strong, show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways, keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as, is, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. Now I want you to notice, if you will, if you turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 17. This then is the uh, prophetic word of God being spoken through Moses to the children of Israel. Uh, Deuteronomy is basically three lengthy sermons preached, proclaimed, declared through God's servant Moses to the children of Israel just prior to their entering into the promised land. It's a reiteration of the law of God. It means the second giving of the law is what Deuteronomy means. And in chapter 17, he says this, verse 14, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself. Or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way. What? Again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart, what? Turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Here are very distinct orders for the monarchy that will eventually be established because the people are going to cry out and want a king like the nations around them rather than uh, serve God under, a, under theocratic rule where God rules his people. They want to be like the nations. God says, this is what's going to happen. And at that time, you will set a king over you, but here's the instructions for the king. David is reminding his son of this. 1 Kings 10, verse 14. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. That's 49,950 pounds of gold. Can you fathom that? 49,950 pounds of gold. Besides that which came from the explorers and from the business of the merchants and from all the kings of the West and from the governors of the land, and the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. <laughs> like this vacant lot next door. The little stones laying in the, in, in, in the lot are as common as silver in this day. 1 Kings 10.28 and Solomon imported 
And Solomon's import of horses was from where? Egypt. 1 Kings 11.3 He had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Because of all of this, and later, Solomon would actually enslave his own people. God said in 1 Kings 11, 11, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. And that's actually our study for next week is the divided kingdom that will be split. Now Solomon, a man of great intellect, a man of great wisdom, as gifted by God, was blessed with abundant, abounding blessings. Um, We can read scripture and and see where a man begins to fall. I'm watching the news this week. CNN at 11, it was 11.15 in the evening, and I'm watching them do this mini-series on a local San Diego pastor who was just sentenced to five years for fraud. Sad. That is not something I stand up and go, "Ah, that should break our hearts. That is a man who, when he was 16, 17, 18 years old, uh, uh, had this incredible Ponzi scheme going on. It's a very famous story. And uh, uh, he was indicted and sent to prison and was saved in prison. Apparently, um, took all these Bible courses and whatnot and came out and started pastoring a church here in San Diego and has been for some time, at least a decade, I think, and uh, recently arrested for fraud. Another scheme. And the point is that it doesn't matter who you are. We must walk in utter humility and dependence upon God. Because as soon as a man or woman thinks they stand, take heed lest you what? Lest you fall. Solomon fell. But the consequences of his sin weren't really felt until the next generation. As far as Israel as a nation was concerned. Now personally... He felt it and he experienced it because everything that he did in life, everything he attempted uh, or or, uh, tried to attain satisfaction in, he later goes on to write, is all what? Vanity. I've been given all of this and let me tell you what I've tried. I've tried this and I've tried that and I've done this and I've done that and I created this and I gained this and I had this, I had entertainment, I had power, I had money, I had women, I had sex, I had you name it. 
mighty navies. I had a navy. I had land. I had projects and building projects. And I had gardens that were uh, um, irrigated. Mark Schroeder didn't invent irrigation. We have great irrigation here that you can't even see. It's all underground. Solomon pretty much invented it. Amen, brother? (laughs) So if you would turn to Ecclesiastes. It's after Proverbs, by the way. And we'll just... uh, scan this book in our next few minutes together. Ecclesiastes, beloved, represents uh, the painful autobiography of Solomon, his life. Written towards the end of his life. And he's describing the fact that much of his life He squandered God's blessing. This is a great example. One of these nights, sometime, I want to teach through Ecclesiastes. Oh man, what, a gr- what great lessons to be learned. It was the first Bible study I ever taught. I studied it intensely and, and, and it was very beneficial, very helpful. Because at that time I was ministering to a group of men who, who, who seemed to have one foot in the world and one foot in the faith. Big professors of faith with their mouth, but lived for these kind of satisfactions, it seemed. So it benefited them greatly. Verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after what? The wind. How do you catch the wind? You don't. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has done great has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this is also but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. Verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly. I made great works, verse 4, I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which uh, to water the forest for growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions. Verse 8, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. 
Whatever, verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Verse 11, behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. How great is it, beloved, to learn from other people's mistakes? (laughs) Right? How great it is, but yet how prone are we to learn the hard way? Verse 17, chapter 2. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after wind. Verse 21. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. You ever met grown up children? who are living off the mother of their parents and they've never worked a day in their life. (laughs) They drive cars, 60, 70, 80, $100,000 vehicles. They live in these mansions and they spend all their time surfing and partying. I've met them. (laughs) Five, chapter five. The wisdom of Solomon, speaking towards the end of his life, the man who acquired everything, tried everything, all to no avail. Guard your steps, he says, when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. Verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. What advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Fame won't do it, man. Amy Winehouse is dead at 27 years old. Yesterday, found dead. You may or may not know who she is. Very, very, very talented young woman. She's dead, probably of an overdose. How many rock stars have died at 27 years of age? I think of Jimi Hendrix. I think of uh, uh, The Doors leader, what's his name? Jim Morrison. Um, I think of uh, Janis Joplin. I think of Kurt Cobain. And here, Amy Winehouse. Why 27? I was thinking about this. Why 27? 27 years old, these rock stars. And I think when you attain success at such a young age, be it 21 or 22, which they all became famous very young, 19 to 22, it only takes about five years to destroy yourself. In this vanity of striving after the wind. Five years is about what it takes. I know guys personally that are in that category who were clinically dead by 27, and but by the grace of God they live today. How? But by the grace of God, I have no idea. Anyway. 
Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, and you might want to pass this on. If you're a young person in your 20s, and you're uh, older than that, and you know kids in their 20s, he wrote this for the young people of Israel. Specifically. And then he concludes, chapter 12, verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is, a weir- is wearisome to the flesh, is weariness to the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Before that conclusion, back in chapter 12, verse 1, he says this, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come, in the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Learn this when you're young, he says. Take it from me. The man who had it all, Wisdom greater than anyone before me. Wisdom greater than anyone after me in all of Jerusalem. I've tried everything. I've done everything. And I tell you that it leads to nothing but vanity. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Great advice. Because the king of kings would come through this bloodline and provide true, deep satisfaction For those that he calls to himself, those that seek him in response to him drawing them near, that is the only place, it is through this king, through this bloodline, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the only place, the only one where true satisfaction is found. Amen? That's it. Two minutes for any comments? Anyone want to add anything? Can you say it again? $5.7 million. $5.7 million is what? One talent of gold. Oh, one talent of gold. $5.7 million in today's market. Okay. It's been said that Solomon is, is the richest man that has ever lived. And if you look at that scale, <laughs> you can say, no doubt about it. Jerusalem didn't have a deficit. <laughs> You see a lot of import there, don't you? 
I mean, just read that account in chapter, you know, when he's building the temple and just look at, remember the Queen of Sheba came to Solomon? Because she had heard about all his greatness. She heard about the temple. She heard about the building. She heard about the navy. She heard about the land. She heard about this. And when she came, what did she recognize? That what she saw and what she heard, what was greater? What she saw or what she heard? What she saw. Was greater than all the rumors. This was amazing. And no man can stand on his own without the grace of God that saves him and sustains him. And he must, in response, embrace that grace or he will fall. Amen? And he'll fall hard. Anyway. One talent, $5.7 million dollars. And that was 10 years ago when his Bible was printed. (laughs) 666 talents, 49,950 pounds of gold. Do the math on that, and then you can let me know what it... Let me know when I come back in here. That'd be great. 38 billion, thank you. He just did the math. 38 billion in a year. A year. So there you go, Donald Trump. (laughs) Or the Microsoft guy. What's his name? Bill Gates, Gates, yeah. All right. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for Scripture. Thank you for the reminder um, of grace that is required to be saved, grace that is required that enables us to stand. Guard our hearts, guard our minds, Lord, that we will never be so arrogant as to think we stand lest we also fall. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the instructions of Scripture, the imperatives, the commands of the Word that we are graced to receive, grace to adhere to, that provide blessing in the end. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.